Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? I love it. We had an adventure in the first service. Something was replaying my own voice to me behind me, but about six seconds after I said anything, uh, which means I'm one of the few people in the world to have interrupted themselves. Uh, I was just sitting there at moments just thinking, what, what is this? Is this brilliant? Everyone has to listen to me twice? Or is this terrible? I can't process anything I'm saying. And we decided to cut the second Alex. And all was well after that. Uh, we are in a series uh, called Riptide. Why Easter changes everything for everybody. We are going almost day by day, hour by hour with these resurrection or post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, primarily to his earliest followers, and just asking, what is happening here? There's this moment where resurrection happens and nobody knows about it. It's changed everything. And then Jesus begins to pull everyone back into this story. Those that are on the fringe of it, those are almost disappearing from it. Jesus pulls them back in. And today we get to look at this fascinating character. So I will read his story. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, blessed because, sorry, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God, as we get into this text, would you please speak to us? We come with all sorts of different concerns all, in all sorts of different places. Some of us come feeling deeply afflicted and need comfort. We pray for that. Some of us come deeply comfortable and we need afflicting. We pray for that. God, would you speak to each of us and move us on our journey with you Amen. Before we get into this text, let me just say there may be a question you might have, especially if you're fairly new to South, of do we not talk more about Mother's Day in the service on Mother's Day? And the answer is we don't. And, and, and primarily that might be because uh, of me. And, and my sense that one, we have this liturgical calendar for a reason. We're following this journey from Easter through to Pentecost. We'll end Pentecost with baptisms. If you would like to get baptized, if you have experienced life change, that is something we would love to celebrate with you. But Mother's Day is, is one of those interesting things, kind of like Father's Day. If you are in joy at the moment, if you maybe have had a child this year, if you are sat next to your own mother right now, sat next to one of your own kids right now, Mother's Day is a joy. It is a great space. And whatever we do this morning, it will still be a great space and you will still experience joy. But it might be that this year that you lost a child. It might be this year that you lost a mother. It might be this year that you've longed to have a child and that isn't part of your journey right now. And so for you, Mother's Day is a sadness. And so our prayer for you is that God brings comfort, that God lifts you up and that you experience his love and joy. But is Mother's Day a huge part of our liturgy? It isn't. We are in this process of moving from Easter through to Pentecost, looking how like a tide, like this powerful thing, Jesus pulls people into the story. And we just read the story about Thomas 
also known as Didymus, one of the sort of forgotten of the 12 disciples. Jesus gathered these 12 followers. Maybe you know some of the names. You know Peter, you know John, you know James, maybe a couple of others. Thomas, you maybe know, but just for one particular reason. He's introduced to us here as Didymus. So my first question is this, have you had a nickname? Have you had a nickname? Have you had a, a thing that people have added to you that said, this is, this is what we're going to call you as? I think there's something fascinating about them. Some of it is generational. Uh, when I was on a trip to Haiti, we had about 15 of us in a, uh, in a van just going from one place to another, and we just observed generationally. People of a certain generation tend to, on a phone, have their name in the contacts, their, their loved one, their partner, their husband, their wife, down as the full name. So you might have first name and last name. And then there was this sort of change in generation. My generation, it's just first name, Laura's just in my phone as Laura. And we began to go around the, the bus and just say, what, what do you have your husband and wife down in your phone as? And we got to one of the younger people on the trip. And when we got to her, she just went bright red like a beetroot. And she just looked at us and said, I don't think I can say it out loud to everyone on the bus. There was obviously some name that was personal to them that they kept secret on their phones. We have nicknames in popular culture. This, of course, is Dwayne Johnson, known as The Rock. What a great nickname. If I wanted, if I wanted a nickname, I'd want to be The Rock. This is Val Kilmer playing Doc Holliday. Doc was not his real name. His real name was John holiday, a little bit more boring. He was known as Doc for the most boring of reasons, as well as being a gangster and a legendary gunfighter. He was also a dentist. You have to, you have to be able to do different things to survive. So he's, he's also a dentist, so he became known as Doc Holiday. And then here's one uh, from back over my side of the pond. Uh, the Queen is known in correspondence as London Bridge as London Bridge. So if she were to die, the, the press release would simply say London Bridge has fallen. And we'd know that this tragic day had come when this wonderful woman is no longer around. Nicknames uh, appear for all sorts of reasons. The first nickname I had was Panda because it rhymed with Alexander. That was a four-year-old, five-year-old nickname. And then, somewhat embarrassingly, my next nickname was Tubster because I had a belly that stuck out when I was six or seven, and I struggled with this. I, I, I remember saying to my mom, like, why is my brother's belly flat and mine isn't? And she just very sweetly said, that's just the way God made you. It's absolutely fine. But that was how I was known to my friends as, a, as an eight-year-old. And, and then as I started to develop my own faith and would talk about it in the workplace, the last nickname I ever had was, was priest. was priest. Thomas goes by the nickname Didymus, which simply means twin. Many of us may have had nicknames, but I'm guessing you probably haven't had an epithet. Thomas goes from someone who's known by a nickname and becomes known as an epithet. An epithet is something that gets added to your name as an extra thing. Some famous ones would be Alexander the Great or Catherine the Great pretty boring at this point. They're just the great because quite often you get an epithet for doing something significant, sometimes something good, and then sometimes something not so good. In, in Homer's tales, Odysseus is known as the great teller of tales. Every pastor I know would like that sort of thing added to the name. I want to be Alex, the great, the great teller of tales. There is Ivan the Terrible, another famous one, and then this one, Thomas the Doubter or Doubting Thomas. The reason we know Thomas, the one reason that he's well known in the story, in amongst stories about Peter and James and John, seems to be because Thomas is the disciple that doesn't have faith. 
He's the one that doesn't believe. If we go back a little bit earlier in the story, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, known as Didymus, twin, was one of the 12, was not one of the disciples, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas was known as twins simply because he lived in a time where lots of people, they didn't have surnames. You needed something to know that you were talking about the right person. You might add the name of a town that they were born. You might add the father, something like that that gave them some distinction. Thomas is simply known as twin, but we come to know him as doubting Thomas, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you've never read anything particularly in this area, you may know that just that is a piece of language that we use. Don't be such a doubting Thomas is something that we might say. Thomas, twin, becomes doubting Thomas. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas doesn't fit as a disciple, or what we picture the disciples as because of this, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you should have this endless faith. Thomas, why don't you believe? Everybody else believes now. Why not you? For some of us, we might look at Thomas' story and say, no, Thomas, come on. You can do better than this. Why Why are you the one that's denying all this? Why are you the one that's holding out on Jesus post-resurrection? I sometimes think that we see Thomas as being an early version of this guy from this wonderful movie, Hook. I do not believe in fairies. Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down dead. I do not believe in fairies! Oh my God, I think I killed it. Are you alive, little bug? Look at so this story is, is, is about Peter Pan, grown up. The boy that should never grow up has grown up. And, and at this point, is a cynical sort of middle-aged man. He's like, I, I don't believe in fairies. And, and when told that a fairy will drop down dead if he says something like this, he yells out loud, even louder, no, I don't believe in fairies. I think this is a little bit at times in church, how we see Thomas, if we know anything about him. Jesus has come back. He has risen again. He's appeared to the other disciples. And when they tell him, Thomas' response is, I do not believe in Jesus' resurrection. He may as well be saying something like, I do not believe in fairies. We almost believe that somehow Thomas, in his denying of who Jesus is, will do some kind of damage to Jesus. We see him in this entirely negative sense. And then Thomas gets his redemption story. A week later, the, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas gets the thing that maybe so many of us would say, if we're honest, we would love. I would love to see Jesus resurrected in the flesh. I would love to be able to make physical contact. If I could only do that, everything would be fine. 
I had this friend that I used to work with when we were in our 20s and we would finish shifts late at night and he had no car so I would drive him home and then we would sit late into the night just having conversations about life and faith and Danny would say he had no particular faith but he would say this, if only I could know for certain, I'd stop, I'd give up everything. Anything that Jesus wanted, I would happily do if only I could have some kind of certainty. I think like we see Thomas, Danny would say, if only I could touch, if only I could feel. It's interesting that almost all of the post-resurrection experiences have some kind of physicality to them. Jesus eats things. Jesus touches things. People can touch him. It seems that the writers of Scripture are very keen that we know Jesus isn't some kind of ghost or something like that, some kind of apparition. There is a real resurrection. In this moment, Thomas asks to touch, and he gets to touch. He gets that joy. But Jesus will then say to him something like, you have believed because you have touched and because you have seen, but blessed, almost better is the person who believes when they haven't got to see. All of you and me, we are in this line of thinking better because we believe without touching, without seeing. We have a different kind of faith. Is this a good reading of the passage that we just read? Is this what the writer John is trying to get us to sort of understand? Is he saying something as simple as this? Faith is good and doubt is bad. And when Thomas is doubting, This is negative. And when Thomas decides to stop doubting, then he steps into goodness, positivity. Does this reading make sense? Is Thomas the weak link disciple? Does he have a faith that's less than the rest of the disciples? Is there something about him that seems inherently sort of broken? Is he just lacking in trust? Is this a rebuke of Thomas? Is Jesus coming to him and saying, Thomas, you have not done well. And and now Thomas finally believes. And this point is like, okay, it would have been nice had you believed me beforehand, but I can kind of see why you wouldn't. And now I'm kind of pleased with you on some kind of level. I think that's close to the reading that I grew up with. When Thomas doesn't believe, he's not doing things well. When he does believe, everything is fixed. Everything is better and that doubt is bad and that faith is good. And Thomas, if only you could just move from doubt to faith and everyone else sitting there in chairs, if only you could just move from doubt to faith, everything would be fine. I think I've read Thomas as almost this entirely negative character. As a child, I think I understood him as someone who was less than and doubting Thomas seemed like a good name for him. But based on what else we know about Thomas... Is doubting an epithet that he deserves? Thomas doesn't appear much in the stories. Again, Peter, James, John, they're the heroes so often of the disciples. And sometimes the villains of the disciples, Thomas is almost just, he's just absent. He gets made known in the lists of disciples, but he doesn't really do a lot except for one time. Jesus is about to make, at least in the mind of his disciples, a very curious decision. He's been doing his ministry outside of Judah or Jerusalem specifically, in places where it's a little safer. Last week, we talked about the difference between Jerusalem and Emmaus. Jerusalem is where everything happens, and Emmaus is a tiny village where nothing happens. And Jesus, for some reason, has been doing most of his work in these tiny little villages. And then he says to his disciples, we're going to make a shift. He's heard that his friend Lazarus is sick. And so we're told, John chapter 11, if you're following along, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judah or Judea. There's going to be a protest. 
And if you were going to suggest that one of the disciples has some kind of weak-linked faith, one of the disciples is less than the others, one of the disciples is negative and finds it hard to believe things, you would expect, right, that Thomas is going to be the one that says, no, this Jesus is a bad idea. But look what happens in this passage. But, Rabbi, the disciples as a whole said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. As a whole group, the disciples said, Jesus, the plan is bad. We need a better plan. Going back to this area is not good for your health, and by extension, is probably not good for our health. And Jesus, in his brilliant Jesus-like way, gives them an answer that seems to us as a, it seems like a complete non sequitur. I can imagine these disciples sort of looking at him saying, Jesus, you're not really answering our concerns when you respond in this way. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Okay, yes, there are. We'll go with you on that one. Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks in night that they stumble, for they have no light. I could picture the disciples sort of going, huh, yeah, okay. Um, it doesn't, again, doesn't necessarily address the concern. They don't like the plan. They're very honest about their dislike of the plan. The plan does not seem good to them. And yet Jesus, of course, will have his way and Jesus will do what he feels his father is calling him to do. And so what happens now? In this moment, there's a chance for one of them to speak up, one of them to somewhat support Jesus. And who is it? It's our friend doubting Thomas. Thomas, also known as Didymus, just so we know that we're not mistaken, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas' other big moment, other than his moment of doubting, is in this moment where Jesus presents a plan that seems fundamentally flawed, in this moment where Jesus says, we're going to go back to Judah, and in and, and a moment when every single one of the disciples is like, this is bad. Thomas, Thomas is the one that says, now let's go with him. If he dies, we'll die with him. There's this phrase that's come up in modern language uh, fairly recently. It's this one, ride or die. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean originally what it has come to mean now. Originally, the language of ride or die was what it was to love something so much you couldn't imagine life without doing that thing. So my uncle, I never got to meet him. He died before I was born, was actually a MotoGP rider. He used to go and race in Grand Prix. This is him on the Isle of Man TT. This legendary race ended up crashing into a tree in a, in a Grand Prix in 1952. Uh, he... He loved this, and he lived for this, and his brothers lived for this too. Even when they got older and they were still bachelors, you would go to their house, and when you walked into their, their living room, there was no television, just a radio playing sports results, and on the coffee table, they would just have an engine block, and they would just sit there, like, tinkering away with it, just working away together. There's fairly good reasons they never got married. <laughs> Trust me, it was just, it was kind of inevitable, I would suggest. But this language of ride or die has come to mean something else. It's come to be language that you use about someone that you can rely on, even in the worst of situations. In modern day language, you might say something like, this person is my ride or die. When I'm in the worst of times, they will still be there. If I go through anything, this is a person I will guarantee I, I can rely on. Thomas, when we read him in the rest of John's gospel, he's not doubting Thomas. A better epithet for me might be Thomas the ride or die guy. Thomas is the guy that's like, no, let us go with him that we might die with him. That doesn't seem like someone who is inherently prone 
to doubt. What I would suggest has happened to Thomas is this. And let us remind ourselves for a second who Thomas is. We tend to think of the disciples, I think, as mostly people in their maybe 40s, 50s. We see pictures of them with big, long beards, sometimes just thrown in with a little bit of grey. And that's our picture. Thomas was probably 16, 17 years old when he started following Jesus. The oldest of Jesus' followers was probably Peter at maybe 21. But the rest of them, we're talking about guys in their teenage years. Maybe you can remember back to a time of life that you could easily commit to things. And Thomas is all in on following Jesus. He is so committed to Jesus and who he is. So committed that when Jesus comes up with a plan that seems to be bad, a plan that could end up in death, Thomas' response is, well, let's go with him. If he's going to die, let's die with him. And then Jesus has died. And suddenly everything Thomas hopes that Jesus might do dies with him. Every single possibility might be created in the world is now no longer a possibility. Thomas has believed in Jesus so deeply and now there's no possibility of any of those things happening. Have you been there? Now maybe it's not in faith, maybe it is. Maybe you've had moments of faith where you've said, I just don't know if I can believe this thing anymore. Maybe you've had moments of interaction with church and said, I don't know if I can sign up to do this again. Maybe you've been in a relationship that didn't work out and said, I don't know if I can trust myself again. Maybe you've tried something and and it's just not worked out. Maybe you've had all of these hopes and you see them all crushed and you end up somewhere where Thomas is right now. How can he opt into believing in Jesus again? When the other disciples come to him and say, Thomas, we have seen Jesus His response is, no, I didn't miss it. I didn't see, I didn't miss it because there is nothing. There's nothing to believe in anymore. I can't get on board with this anymore. For Thomas, he is in a place where how can he possibly believe that any of the hopes that he'd had before can ever be recovered? There's just nothing. It's just hopeless. When we think about doubt, I would suggest there's probably two very different types of doubt. Maybe there's more, but I'm going to give you two. There's definitely head doubt. There's that intellectual conversation that we all have that questions things, that we process things. We say, I'm not sure what I believe about this. But then I would suggest there's another kind of doubt. There's also heart doubt. There's also something, maybe it's even stomach, but somewhere there there's that almost guttural feeling of just There's something not right. There's something broken about this thing. This situation, it's just just not what it's supposed to be. God, how have you let it get to here? We sang that song, didn't we? For those of you that were singing with us, we sang that song, All My Life You Have Been Faithful. And sometimes I sing that song and I'm like, oh, wow, yes. You have, absolutely, I see all of these places. God, you have been so faithful in your goodness. And then, if I'm honest, there's times where I'm like, huh, I can see faithfulness in the past and I can even believe maybe that there might be faithfulness in the future. But right now, this situation, why is this faithful? Why is this right? Why is this good? Why is this fair? 
All of these different questions that come up, there is head doubt that every single person has most of the time. Just to encourage you a little bit, if you're a theist, someone who believes deeply in God and you just wonder about questions you have, it was a joy to me to hear that atheists have the same sort of doubts that we have uh, uh, as well. C.S. Lewis said this, when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. He, as someone who said there is no God, said, oh, I am terrified when I get too far down an intellectual rabbit hole. I start saying, oh man, maybe the whole thing is true. This is almost a universal experience. We have these questions. We wrestle with them and all of those different things. And and Jesus wrestled with this too, or at least was challenged on this. Look at this fascinating passage, Matthew chapter 4. Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your feet against a stone. It's if language, right? Is this really true? Can you really believe this? You keep saying to people, you're the son of God. Do you realize how that sounds to everybody? There's head doubt and then there's heart doubt. And the sad news is, or the hard news is maybe, and maybe the uncomfortable news for you is that Jesus experienced that too. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That questioning of how is the world ended up like this? How is this the story? That's Jesus too in this moment. At this moment, this isn't an intellectual conversation. This isn't a discussion that we have that goes on in our heads. Is this true? Is this accurate? This is a felt thing. This is a guttural thing of what? How are we here? My God, my God, how have you forsaken? In this moment when he quotes Psalm 22, there is this heartbreaking rendering cry. Oh man, I have been forsaken. The writer G.K. Chesterton says this, in the terrific tale of the passion, there is a distinct emotional suggestion that the author of all things, in some unthinkable way, went not only through agony, but through doubt. As he writes this, he actually says, hold on a second. Let me, before I say this thing, I know some of you might wrestle with this. I know some of you might get mad at me. He actually says, just wait, don't, 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 just do whatever to me because I'm going to make a suggestion that you might find uncomfortable because for some of us, the idea that Jesus could feel any sense of doubt is a difficult one to handle. And yet, what we're told by writers of Scripture is this, is he was in every way challenged as we were. In everything like us, he struggled, had to face those temptations. Imagine if you could pull doubt out of the human realm of experience, that would be a joy to so many of us. And to believe that Jesus just got to bypass it and live a human experience just doesn't add up with what we're told it was for Jesus to live the life that he lived. It seems that somewhere he experienced those some things in some unthinkable way in G.K. Chesterton's beautiful language. He went not only through the agony of the cross, but, but also through doubt. Thomas may have intellectual doubts, about resurrection. But somewhere there's also that heart thing of, oh my goodness, this just doesn't feel right. And I just don't know if I can sign up to this again. He is not saying, I have looked at the intellectual marketplace of faith and decided that Jesus Christ no longer represents the best offer of eternal life or something similar to that. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, God has let me down. Jesus wasn't who I thought he was. 
I am disappointed. And I can't keep doing this. I can't sign back in. And you guys, you other disciples, you may see, say that you saw him risen, but a better explanation for me is you saw a ghost. A better explanation for me is it was a mass hallucination. A better explanation for me is something other than the reality of resurrection. And then, and then when we look at it through that light, through that experience, what fascinates me is how this incredible Jesus comes along, this disciple in his lowest point, and walks him through a movement of faith. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. I love that language. A week later, it's a week later and Thomas is still there. This guy that professes to, I can never believe again. I can never get on board again. A week later is still there. I have often wondered why this passage exists. I've often wondered why Jesus didn't just appear to the 12 disciples or now 11 after Judas at a time when they were all there. Why leave any of them out? Why not just pick a time when everyone was present? And it suggests to me that somewhere we're supposed to learn something from this story. And then my follow-up question is, why pick Thomas? Why Thomas? Why not Peter? He's always outspoken, always certain of everything he believed. Why not John, the disciple that we're told that Jesus loved? Why not James? Why not any of these guys? Why Thomas, this unheard of guy? But remember who Thomas was. Thomas is the ride or die guy. Thomas is the, let's go back with him that we may die with him. Thomas is the, the plan is crazy guy, but I'm still in on the plan because I am so committed to Jesus. The plan doesn't really matter. It's Jesus. I'm, I'm still with him. This is who Thomas is. I just have this sneaking suspicion that any of the other disciples, had they been put in this situation, they would be gone. They would be out of there. Yet a week later, we read Thomas. Thomas was still there, still meeting with them, still present, still in the building when Jesus turns up again. A week later, his disciples were in the room again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. There is this possibility that Thomas has this opportunity, Thomas has, that none of us get, right? None of us get to touch Jesus and know physically that he's there, that he is present. And Thomas gets that. And then the language, stop doubting and believe. Again, we, we might read that as, stop doing the bad thing, Thomas. Start doing the good thing. Doubt is bad. Faith is good. Stop doing that and do this one instead. But the language here is fascinating. This is the Greek language. For those of you that like your little bits of linguistics, uh, the language is, and don't be unbelieving, but believing Choose faith, not no faith. I would suggest that faith and doubt are not opposite ends of a spectrum. I would say we all constantly experience what it is to interact with doubt. Sometimes it is intellectual, sometimes it's guttural and felt. And yet in each and every one of those situations, what we get to pick, it seems, according to Jesus is, no, I'm going to move towards believing and I'm going to move away from unbelieving. In the midst of my doubts, in the midst of my questions, I'm going to choose belief. We, it seems, are all doubters. It seems we are all doubters. It's a, un a universal expression. This is the cry, the prayer of a young father who is watching his child go through incredible experiences, difficult experiences, and, and wants Jesus to step into the situation. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, he says this, I do believe, help my unbelief. 
Have you ever prayed that? I have definitely prayed something that looks similar to that. I have definitely said, God, I am struggling, wrestling with all of my questions, both intellectual and felt, all of the ways that I look at the world and say, how is it like this? All of the ways I look at my personal situations at different points and say, this doesn't feel like it's supposed to be this way. And I have definitely said something like, I do believe, but but I'm definitely going to need your help. Thomas is not the natural doubter. Thomas is the natural ride or die guy. Thomas is committed to the core and yet goes into this place of this incredible existential doubt, all of these questions, and Jesus pulls him back and pulls him back to such a degree in a moment Thomas is about to make a statement that he's unmatched anywhere in the rest of Scripture. In all of Scripture, no one makes a statement of faith about Jesus to the equivalent of this one that Thomas is about to make. It has become part of every creed, every piece of language of the Christian faith. Thomas is about to say something that defines what we as followers of Jesus believe about him. In this moment where Jesus appears to him, he makes this statement, my Lord and my God. For a Jewish person to say something like this in the first century, this kind of statement could easily get you killed. This was not something to be said about a human being. And yet this is the statement Thomas makes. If you're contemplating seminary, I'm going to save you like thousands of dollars of of money because this is the only thing that you need to know from seminary. There are these language pieces that are somewhat important, but not as often as you think they are. And yet occasionally they just highlight something beautifully in the text. There is two types of language pieces at, at, at issue here. There is nominative and vocative. And I'm going to explain them to you really briefly for the one time that it actually really deeply matters. Vocative is the language that we've used all through our time of worship. We have said things directly to God. We have sung songs to him and used his name. And then nominative, nominative is, is something a little different. Nominative is, is when you, you make a statement about a person. If Thomas right now uses language that's vocative, what you could hear him as saying is this. My my rabbi has risen again. My Lord and my God, thank you so much for what you have done here. The language could be directed to God in heaven, but the language isn't vocative. The language is nominative. The language is directed about, it is directly about Jesus. uh, Thomas makes this statement that really is just groundbreaking and unmatched. And so fascinating because right at the beginning of his account of Jesus' life, John has said this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He has used this language, the Word, which could mean reason or statement about Jesus. He has said that this person is God in our midst. And then for the rest of his account, nobody has said this. Nobody has made this kind of statement. And John waits until almost right at the end. And right at the end, there's almost this crescendo to the gospel. There is this moment where Thomas gets this statement. Thomas gets put in the place of not seeing Jesus risen. Has to wait eight days. But at the end of that eight days, what we get is the most incredible statement. When we think about this language of reason, you might describe it as this. Very complicated before a second cup of coffee, I grant you. A universal divine reason, imminent in nature, yet transcending all oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and humanity. Broadly speaking, what it says is this, Jesus is the reason and explanation for everything. And the first person on earth to know it is the one we call doubting Thomas. His journey is the first journey that gets 
to this point. Every single one of the other disciples says Jesus is risen. This is good news in some way. Thomas looks at the situation and says, do you know what this means? This means Jesus explains everything about the way the world works. Thomas' movement is incredible from I'm ride or die, let's go with him and die with him all the way through to I can never believe this again. And now to make this statement, and Thomas just in a little bit of nerdy church history will then take the silk trail and he'll head all the way from somewhere over here and he'll land over here in India. And when you go to India and talk to the Christians there, they will tell you Thomas was the first person that brought this message to them. Thomas the doubter just doesn't fit. Thomas is the ultra committed. Thomas is the faith filled. Thomas is the one who gets to the point that every single one of us might get to where we say, I just don't know if this thing is working. I just feel the story is broken. I am so mad and so disappointed. God, you have let me down. Thomas gets to that point. Thomas gets to Jesus' moment of the cro- on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, and then he gets back to my Lord and my God and gets back to this journey. Thomas' story is not one simply of doubt is bad, faith is good. Thomas' story is one of what it is to wrestle with the worst of doubt, the worst of experiences, and come out the other side still believing something and still knowing that somehow Jesus explains everything about the world and why it works the way it does. The question I have for us is this. What are we supposed to do with this story? What are we supposed to do with it? John is pretty clear that he writes for a reason. He wants us to be able to take the story and and use it in some way. Yes, the story is important for Thomas, but it also is supposed to mean something for us. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Somewhere Jesus uses language that says that desire all of us secretly have to just see him in person, to have the physicality, to be able to touch and to feel like we can know for certain, for some reason, though he doesn't reveal, that's not a good thing for us. We don't really need that. Maybe your question has been, why won't you do that for me? Why can't I have what Thomas gets to have? And if I would have to think through why Jesus might say this isn't a good idea, why it doesn't fit, what I wonder is this. I just wonder if he would say, I haven't had a great track record with proving myself to people through signs and wonders and miracles. Back in John chapter 6, he says this to a group of people that are considering following him. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Somewhere to a group of followers, he says, you're not here because I did wonderful things. You're not here because I gave you some level of certainty as to who I was. You're here because I gave you food. If you came for the donuts, I'm okay with it. It's fine. You're here. It's it's not a problem. But there is this language that suggests the signs don't do what we think they'll do. We think they'll give us certainty and they never really do. They don't move us to that point. What seems to transform is stories of other people's transformation. As he kind of rounds up this whole passage, this is what the writer will say. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, these signs, they are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
what we're told is what we have to read, that's enough. If you want more signs, sometimes they'll appear, but don't rely on them. Don't predict them. Don't guarantee on them. These things, these things we have recorded, Thomas' journey, it's recorded there so that you and I can believe. Jesus took the person who was ride or die, the person with the strongest faith, and left him in a place where he had nothing left. And then brought him back to this point of being able to say, my Lord and my God. If it can happen to Thomas, it can happen to any of us. If you find yourself in a place where intellectual doubt seems to be buzzing around your head and you long to get to a point of saying, I'd love to lay these, desire, these doubts to rest, my heartbreaking maybe news for you is, I don't know if you'll ever get to that point. I don't know if that ever stops. If you're hoping that you'll never have a dark night of the soul, never have a moment where you look at the world or your own life and say, God, where are you in the midst of this? If you won't cry out like Jesus cried out, like Thomas might have cried out, I would love to tell you that will never happen. But the truth is you might. There might be moments of why, there might be questions of how is it ended up like this. And yet somewhere what is incredibly true is this wonderful Jesus, like he did for Thomas, comes alongside us, maybe not physically, but certainly spiritually, and says, move towards believing. Trust that I have the story in hand. I'm still working on it. It's still a process. I am with you. And we get to respond like Thomas responded. We get to look and experience that. We get to hear the stories of other people experiencing that. And we get to make that faith statement that says, Jesus, I don't have all of the answers to everything, but I believe you are the best explanation for this world and why it is the way it is and the best hope for what it might look like in the future. We get to sit in this tension Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We are left waiting for something more. We're left waiting for a Jesus who said, well, I will return one day. I will be back with you. And we wait and we wait and we wait. And we trust and we wrestle with doubt and we wrestle with our questions about why the world isn't all just fixed and why everything doesn't look as we would hope it looked. And we say, I choose to believe. I choose to move in that direction. I choose to move away from unbelief and towards belief. I would say the story of Thomas, the message of Thomas is not that doubt is inherently bad. It's that in the midst of wrestling with doubt, we get that option. We get to move towards Jesus and we get to move towards believing. That journey can be painful. It can be hard. It can be difficult. But somewhere we may stand there like Thomas stood there and say, this is my Lord and this is my God. He explains everything about the universe. And we sit in the tension and we wait and we hope. Let's pray. God, for those of us today that are in a place of simplicity, we stand here with no doubts experiencing you. God, I rejoice for that season. For those of us that come this morning wrestling with intellectual doubts, wrestling with existential felt doubts. God, I know what that is. I've sat in that place. Whatever we need, would you speak to us? For those of us that find belief in this moment so, so easy, we rejoice. For those of us that sit in that tension of doubt and say like that man with a son, I believe, help my unbelief. 
would you give us what we need? And that spectrum of belief to unbelief, help us to move towards belief. Help us to choose that story. Come alongside us, maybe not physically. Come alongside us and lead us. Remind us that you're not mad at us, that you're not disappointed in us, that you know us and you know our story. Just like you knew Thomas, the guy who was so committed he would give everything. But you brought him through to this incredible faith statement that changed everything that we knew about you and who you are. Thank you that you picked Thomas on that journey. You didn't go for the well-known guys. You didn't go for the guys that seemed like they had it all together. You picked Thomas who never really does anything else that we get to read about. Thank you that you picked a guy that seemed so certain about everything, so committed. And in the midst of his own crisis of faith, you brought him back to a place of goodness, of joy. If it can happen to Thomas, it can probably happen to us. So in this moment, we make this faith statement in song. For those of us that are following you and wrestling with doubts, we sing this song in Christ alone. We make this statement, I'm choosing belief. For those of us maybe that have always questioned intellectually, maybe we're in a place of just constantly, the, the wheels are always turning. We can sing this song as a first statement of faith. For those of us that just need you to be present with us. I pray we would experience the joy of your presence. Thank you that we get to believe together as a community. Thank you that you love South and you love each of us. Guide us on our journey. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.